In my recent interview with Sarah Rihannon, this is the last episode that came out, so definitely go back and listen if you haven't already. Sarah spoke to me about moving from a single leader model, we use the term benevolent dictator, to a democratic model of leadership. And as she was describing the ongoing and not yet successful shift, they're still working on it, she relayed to me this one anecdote about one of her partners in crime telling her, well, I just like it better when you make the decisions. Which, I have to admit, that's not the first time I've heard that one. How do we share power and leadership without finding ourselves stuck in the deep, sticky mud of leaderlessness? And as we were talking in my head, I was thinking to myself, well, I know someone who has a lot to say about this. Unfortunately, I had actually already recorded that conversation, which is what I'm bringing to you today. Charlie Gilkey happens to be a friend and mentor of mine and is the author of the book Team Habits, his latest, which is among the very scant few business books that I recommend with zero reservations. It's definitely on my must-read list. And it's my contention that this book is quite radical in a very sneaky, quiet way, which is why I wanted to talk to him specifically about the question of how do we actually change the status quo in our work? The number of leaders that seek to use their businesses as sites for social and economic change has been growing. Most folks aren't going as far as Sarah is taking things at world's end, but are still trying to figure out how to undermine the structures of domination and oppression underlying business as usual. I've spent many, many years working with all kinds of lovely business leaders who are trying to create different systems in their businesses who have big hearts, who want to see their people cared for. And what I know is that we, and I'm definitely including myself here too, often end up replicating the systems of domination, even as we seek to undermine them. This isn't because we're failures. This isn't because we're bad people. It's because figuring out how to replace and make those changes while still operating a business within the larger economics of capitalism, isn't all that clear. What does that actually look like? It's hard to figure out. So, true to both Charlie and my forms, this conversation went in a lot of different directions. But mostly, the core of what we're talking about is various answers to the question, how can we do great work together while also treating each other really well?
Obviously, my first question, Charlie, is how do I get my team to do exactly what I want them to do all the time? You build robots. But my real first question for you, because we were texting over the weekend, and I need to know, is why are you the Jack Johnson of business reformation? (laughs) Oh, we could spend the whole hour talking about just that piece. Um, So if you're familiar with Jack Johnson's music, um, it's one of those things where it's really chill and unassuming. Um, and you can sort of get lulled into just sort of a beach pop vibe with him. But if you actually listen to the lyrics, you're like, wait a second, there's something else going on here that I need to pay attention to. Um, there's a bit of that vibe. But the other part is, you know, I don't consider myself like on the spectrum of conventionalism to revolutionary. I'm known neither spectrum. I'm a reformer in a lot of different ways. And that's my approach because it's not. I don't think it's all bad. I just think there are some parts of it that are terrible that we need to really talk about and address. But then there are parts of it that are fundamentally critical to our well-being as a species and as individuals and things like that. And so I think um, we too often pick one end of the spectrum and realize without realizing that there's this messy middle that we really need to grapple with. And sometimes that's approaching hard things in ways that people can engage with them. And then sometimes that's pulling out the flamethrower and being like, here, let's burn it all down. Right. And so my, my approach tends to be what is the way for this audience, for this message that I can get to the end result without it being a constant, like, They got to accept this radical idea that takes me a whole book to explain, especially because where I want to jump in is just the reality that no matter what type of team you're in, no matter what type of business or organization you're in, you're probably pretty burnt out. You're probably pretty full. And I'm really wanting us to fix the plane while we fly it, as opposed to wait for that mythical time in which we can all pause get the whole system right, and then pick it up again. That's a great lead-in, because I, what I really wanted to kind of dig into, or at least start with, and we'll see where we get to today. <laughs> Part one of Kate and anything Charlie. Could, anything could happen. Yeah. Um, is there's so many folks 
more folks that are approaching their businesses as sites of systems change and mm -hmm. social change and social justice and all these things that obviously I'm very much for. But the actual mechanics of that as in within a workplace and a business are very fraught, full of minefield, tension, challenging. I can throw out like more words about that. But I'm wondering how you think about this sort of larger movement of people using their workplaces as places where they're investigating systems change and norms. And why is that so hard? So we're still in the early days of a movement of decentralized um, micro-capitalist businesses, right, or micro-capitalist organizations. It really picked up in the 2000s, largely because of internet businesses and that creating methods and models that didn't require the same amount of scale. It didn't require a lot of those things. And so many people just changed the model but use the model to instantiate paradigms that were problematic to start with. And so why this type of thing is so hard is because, yes, we do have all sorts of different ways in which we can run human-centered, craft-centered, small-scale businesses. Um, but if we're just more efficiently perpetuating the same bad paradigms and norms, then we really haven't made that much of a change, right? We've just changed who gets a piece of the pie or who gets a bigger piece of the pie, not whether the pie has some rotten bits that we need to really address. And so that's one piece. And the other about it is so much of the norms that we need to change are so embedded and invisible in our culture. So if you look at the characteristics of white supremacy in our culture and you start going down them, right, you see folks who are like, I'm going to start my own business because this, this patriarchal this patriarchal sort of scaling machine is bullshit. And then they get in and instantiate these same principles of perfectionism, of bigger, or bigger is more, right? Um, the value of the written word over all other forms, the right to comfort, they do the same things in their smaller business. And the chief difference is they're on top this time. I want to both ask the question of how do we get out of that loop, obviously. But I actually first want to ask, how do we know? How do how do we become aware that we're doing that? Because I, I think, you know, like in my work, and I'm sure you see this too, we work with folks with such big hearts and who are so well-intentioned and so thoughtful about how they're approaching things, and yet still get stuck in these same patterns of domination that come from culture because it's what we swim in every day. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I was just like, Charlie, how do we wake up? How do we get ourselves as leaders with such good intentions to start shifting? Because it's when you're the problem with being on top is that you stop getting so much reflection all the time, of course. You know, there are a few ways to go about this. The simplest way is to actually stay in touch with the well-being and or suffering of your team. You know, because one of my favorite lines from the Tao Te Ching is that that goes against its nature cannot long endure. And so when we start looking at 
long periods of resentment, long periods of needing to shame people, long periods of burnout, long periods of just that revolving door of people coming and going and things like that. Those are all symptoms that the human system is not working. Yep. That's one of the first things to look at because then when you start to unpack, well, why is it that we started the business in 2012 and we've been burnt out since? Well, maybe there is some of those characteristics of expansionism and growth for growth's sake or perfectionism or things that are endemic from the sort of macro white supremacy culture that you're injecting into the system and you can't get out of it. Like the system is going to be designed to instantiate those very things. You're going to get more and more and more of it. Yeah. Right. And so you'll also need to break down common tropes like there's valor and virtue in suffering and hardship, right? Um, what if that's not true? Or ideas that the people who are leaders should be the most knowledgeable and the best versions of everyone. What if that's not true? What if we look at the three dimensions of power and you realize that the two that you use all the time are the ones that are breaking the system and there's a third one that you could use more? Also, let's talk about what risk means because risk is one of the levers used to justify pay salaries, especially for owners and executives, is that they take on more risk. But do they really? When you really start looking at some of those things, um, and the last thing that I'll say, and this comes from a lot of my work on productivity, is what if cranking economic widgets faster is only one dimension of productivity to consider versus looking at how jobs and the work that they're doing is actually enabling people to thrive in a way that suits their values and things like that, right? When you start breaking down some of these um, assumptions that we have, you get different play spaces. The best place though, look at the suffering that you yourself and your team just endure as normal. And it's probably a sign that something's wrong in your human system. And it, it makes me think too of this thing that I see a lot, especially I would say with folks that for whom the the old system was not created, like mm -hmm. those of us that are women or queers or people of color or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Often care for our people like i see this happen all the time where the the owner the leader is bending over backwards for all these accommodations and caretaking and you know doing all this really lovely things for their team paying them super well and then like you kind of look on their hood and earlier like how come you don't get a paycheck how come you don't get time off yeah i was having that very conversation with a client friday in this context owners are in a in a place that creates some weirdness, right? Because owners can neither quit nor get fired. Yep. And so other employees, other people who work with the business have a different range of options of how to participate in or not participate in the system. And so you get into a place where, especially the people that we talk about that are looked at in our society in that view are the ones that are the most tapped, overtapped, doing way more emotional and social and political labor, right? And then start their businesses and then do that same thing there. And at a certain point, to your point, Kate, it's like, you are also part of this system. And 
there's some radical self-care and self-compassion that needs to be here because of this asymmetry that I just speak to. That teammate that you're talking about, unless you've really put that in the system, they don't have to wake up or, you know, respond to that mad customer or client at 3.17 p.m. on a Saturday when they're at the soccer park with their kids or whatever you're doing. They don't have to do that, right? But there's an amount of emotional and social reserves that owners need to have on tap just because part of that job is responding to these amorphous, challenging, urgent sort of things. And if you don't do that, what happens is not only can you not respond that, you unintentionally inject resentment, frustration, overwhelm, shame back into your system. Um, and it actually can create the very thing you don't want. Yeah, we're kind of unpacking all these ways. This is hard. Yeah. And I think there's some sense of like the old normative dominant culture rules feel easy because they're familiar. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense to me that people fall back on them because it's what you know. And so there is often this pushback of like that I, I hear of like, well, this, all this sort of decision making, democracy, consensus, getting people to help me. God, that takes so much time. It's so inefficient. On the other flip side of that, I also at the very same time hear leaders and, and, and owners of businesses really harp about how they wish that team members would take more ownership. Like, mm-hmm. This is a big language thing that's happening these yep, days. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. People both want their employees to take on a lot more ownership, which is really a code for like, share the burden so I'm not the one at 317 on Saturday dealing with the angry customer. But at the same time that like the alternatives feel like so much work and we're already burnt out. So what do we do, Charlie? (laughs) (laughs) What do we do? Okay. So here's the three-step plan to solve this. Um, (laughs) You know, actually what, what we're talking about here is why team habits exist. When I was talking about start finishing, I would go and talk to normal organizations, conventional organizations. They'd be like, this is great. We love the idea of focus blocks. We love the idea of all this. Like, can you get upper management? Like, how do we get them to sign off on this? And inevitably, I would say, okay, so what you're telling me is that in your team, you can't find with each other a way to create three focus blocks per week which is 90 to 120 times where a teammate could just focus on something. You're telling me that's impossible. And you do need your executives and C-suite to mandate that. And so as I unpacked it, they would start to get pissed because they would see the absurdity of what I was saying. It's like, no, you can actually do that. But on the flip side, you know, to your point, here's what I was seeing. Individual contributors were like, I wish we had more autonomy and we could just make decisions and just get to work. Managers, man, I wish my team just had more autonomy and would make great decisions and would just do the work. (laughs) Great. Executives, man, I just wish my teams would just have autonomy and make good decisions and do the work. And I'm like, you're all saying the very same thing, right? You all want the same thing. Something is radically messed up here. One of the biggest pieces of pushback that I'm having with team habits, and I see it in some interviews, not, not this one, but I fundamentally start from the position that most of us are pretty good people. Most of us want to have good relationships with each other. And most of us are doing our best. And if that's true, 
we can't go around and just cudgel people to make them do more because they are already naturally wired to do the very things. Like we are naturally a cooperative species, right? Mm -hmm. So if your teams aren't going towards something, it's because one, they don't know what they need to be going towards or because there's something in the system that's inhibiting from doing that. Because team, we also want to win. Whatever winning looks like, right? We want to do yeah. that together. And so, so many people are like, but come on, Charlie. Like, I mean, that's, that's not really what the real world is. It's like, no, no, no. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty firm no, about it really this. Is. This is who we, scientifically, sociologically, and psychologically, the types of beings that we are. If you're not getting the outcomes that you're wanting, you probably need to look at the systems that are keeping these beings from doing what they want to do. Which are dominant culture, because I think, and I, you and I texted about this, but I, John and I just recorded a future episode about this language shift that mm -hmm. we've both been seeing where there, there was this language for a long time around incentivizing employees. Mm -hmm. So this idea that employees are naturally lazy, they're going to take advantage of you, you're, you know, you have to put carrots out to get really good work from them, or it's, you know, they're, they're going to just do whatever they want. And I see this a lot in a lot of the badly managed remote workplaces. There's all the surveillance technology. That's all about this fundamental distrust and this sort of idea that you can't trust people because they're going to be lazy unless you monitor them or something like that. Yeah. That really flows from a dominant culture because if you want to be at the top, you need to enforce this idea that everybody else can't also get up there with you. Back to this, this shift in language, though, a lot of what I'm seeing now, and, and admittedly, Wanderwell is, is ahead of the bell curve on this kind of thing, like just with the kinds of folks that I work with. But now, and I count myself among this, and maybe you do too, of like, there's a lot of folks that are approaching their businesses from a purpose of caring for humans within them and like creating really lovely jo abundant jobs and I think that's really interesting and I also and you've written about this recently of sort of there's all these great intentions for caretaking and then it's kind of breaking down in the mechanics a lot too sometimes the business models still need to shift but I think sometimes the workways, as you often sometimes call it too, like that becomes a real issue in sort of uh, all of these like shifts in intention into more collaborative. And I'm I'm curious if like if we're speaking to sort of the the good-hearted people that are have a purpose of caretaking in their business, like where do they most need to start in terms of aligning their workways and how they're working with folks with their intentions for taking good care of each other like is it different than every the the other folks or does it not really matter um i'm trying to see what's generalizable in this case right um i think we need to assume at the character level people are more like us at the competency level they are not like us Right. And I think that's where a lot of the friction happens with the really powerhouse, big hearted, visionary folks assume that everyone else from a competency level is a unicorn like they are. I have made this mistake myself. Right. I will confess. And so what happens is when you assume that everybody is as competent as you are, 
and then you're not the game, the scoreboard of the game or whatever you want to call outcomes for your business aren't happening, happening, you immediately assume that it's the character side of your teammates, Hmm. right? That they're just lazy. They're not putting the time in. They're not following directions. They're not doing all that kind of whatnot. When it's probably no, from a character perspective, you hire who you vibe with. And this is actually can be a problem in hiring, right? But you're more likely from a character perspective to hire who you vibe with. And so they're more like you than not. But you assume that, oh, yeah, if they don't know something, they're going to like read 30 articles in 30 minutes and figure out how to do it and then immediately apply it. Because that's just what you do, right? No, that, that's not how it works. And so what I would say on that one is for the types of folks that we're talking about here, right? Before you go to character assassinations or character judgments, stop and say, what, how would I approach this if A, they just didn't know, B, the checklist that I thought was perfect actually is like when a calcul- when like an advanced calculus teacher gives you the step for solving the problem and you don't know calculus. It's like, yeah, it's pretty clear if you know all the terms under there, but you don't, right? You have a self, self-given PhD in uh, business operations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense. But for the rest of us who may be 22, just getting out of school where the school taught them exactly how to think and what the test was and recorded it, and then you get them into a marketplace that's fuzzy. And so, again, I would just want to say pause on the character side of things and say, okay, This is probably one of those things that if I expect another human to be able to do certain types of things, I need to make sure that the environment that I have created supports that human doing that, which means training, which means being clear about things, which means not expecting them to be telepaths and just understand what you're thinking and go and do it, right? So slow down. Here's the general rule I give for owners and founders. When you hire someone, assume it's going to take them three times as long to get that same thing done as it, as it takes you to do for the first three to nine months, depending upon the tech, how difficult that task is. If you hire them and expect that they're able to do it out to jump, you are going to be frustrated because, again, you're making the fundamental flaw, the fundamental error that they have the competencies that you do and they need some space, some grace some training and for lack of better words, indoctrinate like re-indoctrination or deconditioning yep. from the from that model into the model that you have in your business. So I'm wondering, Charlie, like when you're sort of hiring and sort of bringing new teammates on and trying to form teams, you kind of need to like deprogram people. You absolutely do. To a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Do you, are there particular hot spots that you see with teams that need to like really unpack, especially with new forming teams around how they're working together, how they're communicating how they're making decisions and stuff like that? Yeah, I would place a lot of it around decision-making 
And then the other side is going to be on what I call the core team habits or just the habits you do as a team that support each other doing the work. Right. Um, so personal effect in this habit is habits that we all do. So a few things that we can talk about here. So levels of decision making. Um, and so there are three different levels of decisions that can be really good to work with your team. And so a level one decision is a decision um, that someone can make without telling anyone else. Right. So I'll expand it because it's a decision they can make or an action they can take and don't need to tell. OK. A level two decision is a decision they can make or an action they can take, but they need to tell someone, they need to tell their teammates for different reasons. And then a level three decision is a decision they can't make or an action they can't take without sending it to someone who owns either that decision or that question, because those are not the same thing, right? Um, so even pausing and saying, okay, new teammate, here's the realm of action and decisions that you have that you can just do. You don't tell us about it. And here's why. Here's why these are level one decisions and why you don't need to tell us about them. And also understand that if you over communicate level one decisions, you're actually tapping into the resources of your business and teammates. You're tapping into their attention and their time. And so it's actually creating waste in it that doesn't help any of us. And that waste turns into what we can pay people, right? That's, that's how profit works, right? Um, or here are the level two decisions and why you need to tell other people about those because they touch on things and here's why those things are important. Or here's a level three decision and why you can't make that decision, right? Because there may be some of these things that you don't know or you are doing something that might jeopardize the entire, entire business or team in a way that we just like that's a hot stove item and we want to be careful about that. But it's not you're not competent. You can't do it. You're not good enough. It's you might not know about these things and your area of work may not have the visibility to see the ramifications of those choices. My job is to do that, right? That is my unique job if you're a leader or something like that. My unique job is to make sure that these choices are creating a abundant whole that's sustainable, right? Um, and so, no, you can't go out and hire a teammate on your own. No, you can't just fire a teammate, right, without letting me know. Like, there's some things that we can specify like that. I mean, that seems to speak to sort of, like, back to this question of this stuff takes so much time. And you can't do the ownership thing without putting in the work around the democratization thing. Like, the, these actually go hand in hand. And I'm mm -hmm. often haunted by my mother, who was an administrator at a Quaker school and would come home. And be like, can't we just make a fucking decision? Because they still use true consensus, which is not not many people do. A little bit more on this Quaker consensus anecdote for you. I went to Quaker school as a kid, which is both an important thing to know about me. It really explains a whole lot. Uh, but also, it's why I happen to know a lot about this topic. Quakers are famous for their anti-authoritarianism. They were abolitionists and organizers of the Underground Railroad, conscientious subjectors in the Vietnam War. They're pacifists. And at the school I went to, and this is most Quaker schools do this, we called our teachers by their first names, didn't fly the American flag. And I learned in kindergarten that Christopher Columbus was a bad man that hurt Native Americans. The other thing about Quakers is that they do things by consensus, like true 
everyone has to agree, consensus. So my mom actually retired a few years ago from her decades-long job as the vice principal of the Quaker school I went to. And so this is how I ended up with this very clear memory of her coming home from work one day and, again, kind of mock shouting, frustrated, can't we just make a fucking decision? Because again, consensus. And I'm telling you this all this because the fact that I went to a very progressive Quaker school is part of my own DNA. And I'm telling you all this because consensus-driven meltdown is a thing. And I want to assure you that the alternative to hierarchical decision-making is not Quaker-style consensus. Very few democratic workplaces do that, and there's lots of other options. So this seems to sort of actually like address this problem in a pretty lightweight way. What about the deeper work? So the deeper work of like helping people decolonize themselves or or what what different deeper elements are you, are we talking well, about? Well, I'm guessing like for folks that are really they're trying to upend their models, the sort of more economics, even up to like John and I have been getting into employee equity and ownership and like pathways to that kind of stuff. So actually like meaningful ownership, not just giving like sort of talk, talking about it as if I, I wish people would be owners when I'm still playing them as employees. And I think that the tactics and the habits that you're talking about are actually the fundamentals to all of this at the same time. So maybe I'm answering my own question. You are. You are, in fact, answering your own question. And that's that's where um, my work can be subversively simple. Well, maybe this is a better question for you, Charlie, because I this this has been my, my contention of your book is that it is very subversive, even though you're Jack Johnson, yep. because you're Jack Johnson, because it's so simple and people... People both don't want to do the harder work, but they're also suspicious of things that don't require like a 12-week deep dive and, and a lot of money. Well, part of the reason they're suspicious is because we have an entire market. We, we have entire institutions that program us to think that the hard, complicated things are more valuable. And if it's not hard and complicated, then it's not a good solution, right? And so... Um, whether you're talking about higher education, whether you're talking about the big consulting firms, whether you're talking about all those types of things, we get sold on complex, abstract, complicated models are the best solves to these very simple problems. Yep. And then we then have to pay people to teach us and then we have to do all that kind of whatnot. So it's kind of one of those things, I'm going to sell you something that you can't do yourself. And so I'm wanting to go the other ways. I'm, I'm going to sell you something that you can do yourself. And that is part of it. Because what it's going to do is if you really create enough belonging in your team and organization, and you really start talking about the why underneath some of these principles, somebody can reasonably ask without fear of penalty, without it being an oddball question of like, how do we think about compensation? And why is it that way? And then if you are actually embracing the model, your first response can't be, well, that's just how we do things. Or it's just like, that's like, you don't, you get out of the ability just to throw out a sacred cow and let that be the end of the answer. Right. Oh, that's just how we do it. And we move on. 
So you and I, I think, are advocates of different styles of open book management or OBM. Um, one of the things we know about OBM that you have to be very careful of is when you start opening up people's individual salaries yep. so that other people can see that, right? Um, and that usually is the sacred cow last thing if you even get there at all. If you even get there at all, because yeah. um, we are very, like, you might think it's rational and so on and so forth. That's, that's not the type of beings we are. Mm -mm. I'm fine with my salary. Like, P Kate and I are on the same level. We're doing the same thing. I'm fine with what I get paid until I see that Kate makes a little bit more for whatever reason. And then all of a sudden, I'm not fine with my salary, and it's not fair, right? Um, but I was fine before, and so you have, to, you have to be very gentle with those types of things, and it requires an extraordinary amount of educating your team to even understand how these things go. And so most of us who do OBM, like advising, are just saying, you like, wait, you have a salary column, and you can tell your team, here's how much you spend on salaries, but you don't go down to per teammate because that level of really getting there is very, very challenging. Um, because we also, no matter how anti-capitalist we want to be, we live in a capitalist system, right, with different norms. And let's be frank, we're still trying to figure out what post-capitalist businesses can look like because there's still going to need to be a way in which people, people's contributions are valued asymmetrically. But what's the exchange of value? that doesn't just replicate that. And I'm, I don't have an answer here, y'all. I really don't. I don't have an answer either. But I do think, you know, kind of what we're talking about, though, is that there, there are these lines of power that run through this. Mm -hmm. And the traditional line of power is that all of that information is secret mm -hmm. because then the employer has all the leverage. You don't know what I make. I don't know what you make. Charlie, you're a man, so you get paid a lot more because you negotiated and I didn't know to do that. And the company does not want us to talk about it because they don't want me to know. Yeah. And so we're disrupting that, you know, with this practice of transparency and things like that, but also being cognizant of consent of the way that power runs even through teammates that are on the same level and stuff like that and how this kind of information can create weirdness amongst colleagues, particularly without a ton of context on education and stuff like that. And this is probably a good metaphor for kind of all of the practices that you're talking about through this book, which is like pay attention to the levers and leverages and kind of where you're moving them as you're making these shifts. That sounds right. Yeah, I'll pull back the, the three dimensions of power thing that I sort of... Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So there are three dimensions of power in any organization or team or anywhere where you have humans, right? A collection of humans. And in work, we typically only talk about two of those dimensions. And that's why so many of these conversations are fraught, right? So on the one hand, we have individual power. And that's what I can do because of my own competencies, expertise, know-how, and just get it done, right? I can just do the thing. On the other hand, we have institutional power, which is typically power over because of my position, I have power over these projects, these resources, these teammates, so on and so forth. And I have that power because of my position. And so much of work ping pongs between, I got like, there's this problem that I as an individual, well, I, I can't really fix it. So I got to take it to the boss, right? Um, and I have them fix it. It's their problem. Or um, the boss is trying to figure out something. And so they just use institutional power to get it done. Like that's the typical, how do I get my people to do what I want? They're hitting that lever. 
Team Habits is really about this middle layer of interpersonal power. This is power with. This is what Kate and Charlie can do together that neither one can do by themselves, but we also don't need institutional power to do it, right? Um, And so call it peer power, call it whatever you want to, but it's this layer of, okay, Kate and I can come together and solve this. For instance, if Kate and I are on a team, by team, I typically mean the four to eight people that you spend 80% of your time working with most days. If we come together and our meetings suck, Kate and I can be like, that sucked. Let's not do that again. And Kate's like, yeah, that totally sucked, right? And we can make something better. And we don't need to be like, hey, boss, we're fixing our meetings or can we fix our meetings? We can just do it, right? But it's not something that I can do. Charlie can like enforce a change on Kate, right? Without Kate's consensus and partnership on that, right? Because otherwise it's not going to work. And we can do that with four to eight people. It's not that hard, right? We, we are built for little squads like that. And so, so much of team habits is really about saying, look, how do we make these decisions? Or, you know, the other bad team habit I've talked about recently is the habit we got in during the pandemic to where everything got crazy and we decided, okay, what we're going to do is for most things that we don't know how to do, we're going to get together and all collaboratively make a decision about what we need to do. And sounds good in small slices. It's exhausting. This is how you get to my mom coming home and kvetching from work. (laughs) Right, right. It's exhausting when it is the normal way you do things instead of saying, actually, that seems like that's a Kate decision. So why are six of us coming together to collaborate with Kate when Kate didn't ask us to do that? Right. And so what I'm wanting to do is actually put more care back into the relationships between teammates so that we can have that interpersonal power so that when Charlie and Kate are in the middle of doing something and I accidentally bump into Kate and it's awkward, Kate remembers that's Charlie. He, I mean, we're going to do this. He's got my back. Like he didn't mean to do it. Right. And it can be called out as a bump versus, well, Charlie's out to get Kate. And like Charlie was just absent-minded in that moment. Right. And accidentally stepped on Kate's toe. Right. That's all that was. Right. Now, if we approach that as as human beings in partnership, Kate can be like, hey, Charlie, you stepped on my toe. And Charlie can go, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. Right. And then we can go on about our day and not get into Charlie stepped on our toe. And like, like, and then and six I'm months like later. doing for like weeks. Weeks. <laughs> well, like, why is Kate mad at me? And then I, as a teammate, don't know. I'm anxious and uncertain. I don't know what I'm doing. So I do what humans do when they get into a period and when they're not trusting each other is they see then everything. It's like, ooh, I need to be careful. I can't trust Kate. I don't know what's going on with her. So I signal distrust. Kate sees that signal of distrust and starts distrusting me. Now people are laughing because it sounds like that doesn't happen, but this is in fact what happens. Yeah. Right. And we're talking about physical things because it's easy to understand. But it could be that Slack message where I was snippy one day or my cat died and I was just in a really bad mood. And something that a teammate does that is normally pretty innocuous, I had had it that day. That was me not being my best version of human because my cat died. But that can lead to a bunch of friction. The last thing that I'll say about the well, last thing before you ask a question about it is (laughs) when it comes to the three dimensions of power. When you choose the paradigm, you reinforce the paradigm. 
So if you choose institutional power as a paradigm for solving problems, you reinforce it in all the bad ways. And so what that means from a team perspective and team relationship perspective, if Charlie steps on Kate's toe and Kate then goes and stews about it and then takes it to our boss to have our boss intervene and mediate and create a triangle, Kate chose institutional power to solve that problem and reinforced it. What she did not choose is interpersonal power where we can come together and solve that each other. And so, so many of the conversations, when I, when I get to unpack it with clients, it's like, how am I in all these triangles? Well, because your team and you are using institutional power as a vector to solve these problems, right? You haven't created an environment of belonging and safety, which by the way, does not mean everybody's performing toxic positivity And, you know, it's like always fun times. What it means is we can come together and trust each other to have hard conversations because they haven't created that environment. Whenever someone steps on someone else's toe, it goes to the boss and it's just the teacher model. Like he called me a name and then you take it to the teacher. Teacher has to intervene. And then we just recreate that instead of being the really generous adults that we can be. Which I want to say is hard. You know, just as you're talking, I'm sort of thinking about this and being like, God, but, you know, we got all awkward during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. A lot of us are working remotely when we didn't used to. And a lot of us have a lot of trauma. We have a lot of past work trauma. We've worked in a lot of shitty places that over leveraged institutional power and things like that. And so this isn't really a question, but just an acknowledgement that I think, you know, what you're talking about is really hard work and requires a lot of courage, I think, on the part of teammates to be able to have those challenging conversations together rather than using sort of pathways of different kinds of power that might feel more safe in the moment. This is the disruptive work of reconfiguring how we relate, how we work together. Like there is no like $10,000 program magic fix. It's actually just being with people. And this is the challenge that I have. So yes, it is hard. And also it's very unique to the team. Yep. Like, and so some people will come to me. It's like, what should my team do? And if I'm being honest in that, I don't know. (laughs) Well, here's some things to think about, but your team probably knows what to do. Like, how about you ask them? Why do you think I know more than your team does? When I've told you, I don't, you know, it's really the number one rule of being a good teammate, which is be the teammate you want your teammates to be. So someone has to take on the difficulty. Someone has to be like, you know what, instead of me taking this to the boss for them to figure out, because the other thing to remember is, especially at the team level, your team leader and manager is part of the team and has interpersonal power with the rest of you too. And this is what can be really hurtful for so many of the people we've talked about on there is when their teams will say things like, well, leadership doesn't care about that, right? The company doesn't care. And you're like, it's me. You're saying, I don't care, but that's manifestly untrue. Why didn't you come talk to me about that? And it's like, well, our organization, it's us. What are you talking about? I'm right here. (laughs) I am right here. Right. Well, we don't care about diversity. Well, I care about diversity. And and that's because that teammate is in that moment 
choosing institutional power in the language of institutional power. But the person, the real person sitting in that seat that cares about that teammate, that hired that teammate, that wants to work with that teammate, is like, what the actual fuck here? It's me. Why? Did, if you didn't like that, you could have brought that up. And you know I don't think like that. So who are you talking about? So when I say you choose, when you choose institutional power or when you choose that power, you reinforce it because it could have been another way that could have happened is whatever teammate is saying, whatever they're saying, they could have said, you know what? Hey boss, like, I'm not sure why we do it this way. I'm not necessarily questioning and sort of, I'm not nailing my 99 theses against the wall, but this seems to be inconsistent with how we normally roll on things. And I'm not sure what's going on here. So can you explain that to me? And if you built a team where that's actually a neutral question, and you've also built it so that the person being asked, the manager, can say, you know what, that's a great question. I am 100% swamped right now. And I'm not the most resourced to be able to answer that question. Let's schedule a meeting or conversation about a week from now so I can prepare my thoughts and answer the question. And the teammate who asked the question to actually see that from a place of trust, right? And not just that they just don't want to answer the question. I'm like, no, actually they do. So again, we forget that our bosses and team leaders, especially in a team level in the way that I'm talking about, they are part of the team too. Yep. And what we really need, this is my sort of take on upward delegation and those types of things, right? That, that person, because of their position, has certain things that they can decide and do that will make our lives better or worse. And that's just part of the institutional power line. We want them to have the most resources to make those best, the best decisions that they can. We actually do want them to have the space to solve some of the strategic problems so that we don't keep like messing with the broken printer all over again and things like that. So we take work off of their plate, not necessarily because they're the better person and they're the king or queen, but because we need them to do a thing that only they can do because of the way that this works. And we agree mostly with the way this works, which means we need to take that from them, not because they're better, but because that's their job. If they are doing our jobs or jobs that we could do, they can't do their job. And we hate when that happens to us. So why do we not, right? Why do we not reciprocate in kind? Right. Because we're used to being abused by institutional power. But I, I think, you know, I appreciate this point and back to the Charlie the Reformer. Because I'll I'll also say, like, I in my anarchist heart, I am also not opposed to hierarchy. And I think what you're pointing to is sort of the way that I think about it, which is in an organization which is about sight lines. Mm -hmm. The big boss looks out further, like a year or so, five years, ten years, whatever. And the closer you are to the ground, the like shorter your viewpoint is and I think what you're describing is a way to respect that without setting up an adversarial power relationship about it precisely how we can allocate different sort of levels of sight and different types of responsibility without having to be adversarial about it yeah I love that and I actually learned that in all places from the military from being in the army yeah. Right, People think the army is the classic patriarchal sort of thing, but when you really get into it, or the military, the DOD especially, it's actually not that. It is one of the most anti-hierarchical organizations, even though it has things. And so you know that general 
yes, you respect them, and there's a little bit of the hero worship thing going on. But you also understand that that general has the key decision about where to deploy thousands of human beings. We want that general, we want her to be able to make those choices really, really well because she's making choices on our behalf. And this goes to, and I've seen this with companies that try to go sociocratic or anti-hierarchical and things like that. It's all fun and games until you take a person who hasn't had to think about it before to make a decision about whether 100 or 200 people have jobs anymore. Then all of a sudden they're like, ooh, I don't want to make that decision. I don't want, like, that's not what I'm here for. I just want to do my good job. And that's okay. But understand that there are other people that is their job. Yep. And if you don't want to make that type of decision, then maybe have some peer level, functional level respect about those people who do and do the best you can to provide them what they need to, to make that decision. Again, you could see it as power deference, or you can see it as that's a job that is really important to get done. Yep. That I am going to support in the way that I do, but I don't want that job because if you really go full consensus and anti-hierarchical and all that in a business, you're going to have people who would rather just show up and be really good at what they do that are then on committees where they're uncomfortable, they don't want to do it, so on and so forth. And how do we, how do we really respect that and not say that they're less than, because they're not. We can have people whose aptitude is to longer-term thinking, tough corner decisions, seeing around corners, like those kind of things that leaders are. The deprogramming is around that they are special, unique, and deserve all sorts of institutional power to back them. But not everybody in an organization needs to do exactly that function within an organization. Precisely. And we might say for those leaders who do that, and also the innovators and the writers and the things like that, they might actually need to have a unscheduled morning where they're just looking out of the window to think about things and make some of these decisions. And it doesn't look like they're working. And it's like, why is it there fair that they don't have to like ship this client deliverable and they don't have to do that? It's like actually to do that job, that is their core, the core way that they do that. And we have to respect that. And this goes back to what we're saying about owners and founders, especially of the smaller businesses that we're talking about. That space that you need on, well, if you're Kate, like Monday through Thursday. Every day. Right. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> to, to wonder and explore and things like that is actually the critical part of you doing this, this very specific function. And if you don't make space for that and you don't value that, one, you don't get the function. And two, you're not taking seriously what that individual worker who happens to be the owner needs to do that job well. And I had this interesting session with a client recently who has like no standing meetings. They have like sort of absolute autonomy. And one of the people was really pushing back. They didn't want to burden their people with meetings. Their people don't want meetings. They don't want meetings. They've never been in a meeting that was well run, like all of these things. I threatened you with the tyranny of structuralistness article, which is sort of a classic kind of like feminist movement organization text. 
The article I'm mentioning here, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, is by Joe Freeman and dates back to the 1970s. The TLDR of that article is that covert structures, what we don't name, will always norm to dominance if you don't intentionally design something different. In other words, anarchists need rules too. So that could be, we've kind of covered this already, like replicating some structures of dominance, like all of a sudden you're the head of a small business and you're encoding perfectionism into the business, whether you like it or not. But also like in this case, they have such a freewheeling team structure that, but what's fundamentally happening that I can see because I'm not part of it, I'm an outsider and I have all this experience is that that's only possible because one of the partners is shouldering all of the connective tissue work and all of the operations. It's almost like the Goldilocks problem. Like we don't want to replicate these systems of domination and norm work culture. And so a lot of folks are going all the way to the other swing to the other side of like, I don't want rules. I don't want meetings. I don't want all this shit. (laughs) Yeah. But the work is still there. Like the connective tissue, the communication work, the decision-making work, like it doesn't go away. This is like, it's like a law of physics of matter or something. Like you can't disappear it. And so maybe we can wrap up by getting a little bit into sort of the Goldilocks practice problems of navigating these spaces. So when I wrote team habits, I used the eight different types or categories of team habits. And the reason I chose those eight is because those are the universal sort of activities that teams do. And what I remind folks is, is that if you change one of those types of team habits, you're going to have ripple effects on the others, right? Um, And so meetings are the easy whipping boy of management and team thinking because there's so many that are bad. And so I need to be 100% clear here. I am not anti Me neither. Right. I'm anti-bad meeting, and which means 80% of them go away, right? When we think about how many of those meetings are just update meetings or they're just other types of meetings that we didn't need to have to fundamentally solve the problem. However, if you go into a no meeting structure, one of the first things that you can anticipate is that your belonging quotient of your team is going to go down. Right. And so it's going to be a more efficient time. I'm I'm, got air quotes here, right? You're going to spend less time, but your teammates are going to feel more disconnected with each other. And so you're going to have to have other glue practices, communication practices and belonging practices that basically have us come together and figure out that we actually are okay together because so much of our belonging with each other is actually built upon nonverbal cues. Right. That's just how we are as species, as a species. And so if you get rid of meetings, and yep. I've seen this, there's someone whose work I really, rec- I really like respect in a lot of ways, except for he's in like meetings or bullshit, get rid of them. And I'm like, mm, no, 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 that your privilege is showing there, but right. Um, and so because people are going to need to get together and solve things, they are going to want to see each other. They are going to want to do those types of things. And so. My thing is like, okay, so maybe you figured out how to get all of the collaborative decision-making, goal-setting, update, review stuff out of meetings. Cool. Great. And, you know, you could just have a 30-minute meeting where people catch up with each other and see how they're doing and talking about each other's kids and things like that, because that's what humans care about. It's really, so I am pushing back that the belonging and bonding and relational work is the fun stuff or the non-business yeah. stuff or that it, it is a part of the work. 
And it is a critical part of the work. And it's not about gender. It's not about men like it or women don't like it. It's just what humans like. Yep. What I would say is, okay, leader, you that doesn't particularly resonate with you. So you have a couple options. One, you can say, hey, team, this is just important to everyone. And I want to make sure that we prioritize and that it's a part of our business that we do it. So you all figure out when you want to do it and show up and have it. I'll pay for the time. I, that's cool. It unfortunately is not something that really sings for me. Right. And I want to give it a case where like for the other folks that may be like that, if they want to do that, there might be other ways to do that. And so we can actually create an environment to where you don't decide, don't decide this doesn't resonate for me. So no one can do it. But you also don't have to go to the other ones like it. So because it resonates for two people, we all have to do it. Right. Or no. you don't you don't also have to be the person that leads it all the yeah, time. You can just I show know up. for us deeply introverted people, sometimes these meetings feel like pulling our own nails out. Like it can be mm -hmm. really a slog if you feel like you have to be the person that's doing the extroverted team belonging like thing. And it doesn't have to be that way. I wanted to do that in team habits is just to remind people that like this assumption that the team leader has to run meetings. Who decided that? Maybe they don't. And it can be that simple. It's, and so people are like, you know, because I've seen that happen where people are like, well, I want to have a different meeting structure, but the boss just does it this way. I'm like, have you ever asked her why? Right. Or have you ever proposed her in the following format? Hey, I would like to try some things. I will run the meeting. I think you need about a 20 minute block for whatever thing that you need to talk about. But are you okay if I run, if I facilitate, send the agenda, run the meeting, send the notes and do all that kind of whatnot to give this a shot? I would be really, really surprised if the team leader or manager is like, nope, you can't do that. Right. What's more likely to happen is like, sure, we can give that a shot. I just need to make sure to do this one piece. Again, that is interpersonal power at play. That's collaborative co-agency at play. And that's something that everyone listening to this podcast can actually do today or tomorrow for making their team better and working better together. Anything else you want folks to know as we send each other off into our other meetings for the day? <laughs> I'm really grateful to be here, and I know your listeners tend to be really big-hearted folks, right? And so I started with this was I'm a reformer, right? I think when we when we go to the different ends of the spectrums, we don't create the real solutions. We don't co-create the real solutions that's going to make work better. Just because the conventional way doesn't work for you doesn't mean that you throw out everything. And this is all iterative. Mm -hmm. What works today may not work next year, and that's okay. That's perfect, actually. So um, just wanted to sort of end with that. And thanks for having me, Kate. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for listening to this Boss Talks edition of Whiskey Fridays. Music today, this is very special to me. I asked Charlie if he would be willing to record a little something for us to weave into this episode. And to my eternal delight, he sent me a cover of David Gray's Bird Without Wings, which you heard at the top. Other music by my friend Billy Dufala, 
including the outro, which is a track Billy calls Shitty Cat Song. Check the show notes for more on Charlie Gilkey. And please, if you work with other humans at all, anywhere, definitely get yourself a copy of Team Habits. As always, you can find me, Kate Tyson, at wanderwellconsulting.com and katetyson.substack.com. Talk to you next time. Big love, y'all.